put the ripple went into the bank account. The bank account went, la, 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 la. fantastic. But the relationships with family and friends and colleagues went da, 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 down. And with myself, so I was superficially successful, but in depth, I was far from successful because I wasn't being who I wanted to be. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Today on All the Way in Gothenburg, we have got Martin Richards. Uh, he's an educator. Uh, we, we connected, I don't know, like I want to say two years ago. It's been a while. Um, yeah, just thinking about education, coaching. Uh, I've got a youth work background. Um, you, you were thinking about schools, but that's where we connected. And then we've sort of kept in touch on a, in a sort of loose basis. And finally, I've got you on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, finally, as you say, it took a couple of years to organize. It took a couple of years, but there you go. I don't, I mean, the podcast didn't exist when we were first talking. So there you go. I would, I would have had you on, obviously. Um, and I remember our first chat because we just went back and forth, didn't we, quite a lot, just about teenagers and education <laughs> and what was wrong with it and how the world needed to change and what people, great people were trying to do, such as yourself. Um, so give our listeners just a little bit of an overview. Who are you? What do you do? What excites you? What sort of lights your fire? Oh, what lights my fire is getting into deep conversations with teenagers. There's, there's something magical about they're, they're not quite fully adult and they're not children anymore. And just being in a conversation with them where I treat them as who they are becoming. And, and, and treat them almost like an adult, but still allowed to make mistakes, still allowed to experiment, still allowed to get stuff wrong in glorious ways. And, and, and that's part of what I do, is, is go out to the local colleges, there are 42 of them, and speak to teenagers who are possibly just starting their, their um, college years or finishing their college years. That tends to be the two places I go in. And um, we, we talk about life, the, the meaning of life and how to have a good one. I love that so much. I love that your answer of what lights your fire is having deep conversations with teenagers. I, I have to be honest, I miss it sometimes. I've, I've mentored a few kids, but they're not kids anymore. They're like 25 because it's been that long. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, but although I have teenagers now, so my kids are 13 and 15. So I'm getting to kind of practice some of those or experience again some of those wonderful deep conversations. And I probably would have gone full stop. So what lights my fire is the deep conversations in general, which is why we've got the, the podcast. But there is something, I love how you said, treat them as, how they're as who they're becoming, right? And so there's this beautiful, like hopeful, magical, kind of creative place that you can communicate. And then how does that make you feel when you're in that kind of place of flow with those teenagers having those deep conversations? Sometimes it's like being a, a lighthouse beaming out the like life is wonderful. You know, you're ready to go now. You've got everything you need. You had everything you need when you were born, but okay. 
go out there and have a blast. It's going to be a little bit scary. It's going to be a little bit fun. And how you take it, how you interpret it is going to, you know, color your life. So sometimes I'm the lighthouse, but more often I'm also a mirror where suddenly they will light up. And I guess I'm getting better at speaking to teenagers because I've been doing this for 12 years. Um, I'm noticing that I'm able to pull out their lighthouse moments. Um, mm -hmm. I know, I know. <laughs> it's like I can structure a brilliant moment now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, but then the, we're, we're talking about the good bits, right? And often if I say teenagers kind of light me up, um, other people are like, ooh, really? Like, oh, like all of them? <laughs> like, you know, um, I'm like, yeah, like all of them pretty much, you know, um, be because, I, because I understand psychology and the context of even the most difficult young person who is acting out and even to the extremes of violence. I used to work with young offenders and work in pupil referral units where kids are excluded from mainstream school. Like, I feel like those were my glory days, right? They're, they're just like, you feel so alive. And there are days when it's just like, you get punched in the face, not literally, sometimes. Not literally. <laughs> I, I did, I did get punched in the face. I took it too far. I was in the middle of like a role play and I went over to a kid and I involved him. He wasn't quite ready for it. Or he was somewhere else in his mind. And I said something and he knocked me down. And I was okay with that because that was exactly the thing to do to someone who says that. So when the whole room was going, oh, you're right. I went, yeah, perfectly okay. And then we went from what's actually happening here. Because I set up to go somewhere else. And I stepped over a line. Bam. So it happens. Once in 12 years it's happened. Well, and what I, what I actually love and what I miss is the immediate feedback loop in that sense, you know, like the brutal honesty and like, if you're shit, if you're doing a bad job, you will know about it immediately. Not on some distant feedback form where somebody's put their anonymous name of like, you, you know, you, you will, you're going to know. So I, I really um, credit a lot of my ability to work in corporate settings and with, with sort of law firms and, you know, financial services, construction, all these sorts of places with working with young offenders. Yeah, because you you've got to be on and you've got to keep going. You got Your resilience is built by the fact that you simply have to keep going, no matter what is being literally thrown at you. Sometimes <laughs> stay in the conversation, stay with it. Exactly, stay with it. That was interesting. I wonder if the ability to give direct feedback is attached to a tendency towards criminality, or do they end up there because they're not able to hold hold back in a kind of we were talking about swearing before. If they're brutally honest inappropriately, do they end up in a place like a prison? Um, I mean, that's too black and white, right? Um, yeah. and, and I think there's a certain, if the conditions are right, that even um, young people that maybe have uh, the, uh, the better conditions, if they're, create, if, if they're given that environment and space where they're allowed to speak, their truth is often more powerful than with the layers and layers and layers of like, I must be a grown up and sound like a certain person, right? Um, but yeah, I think, you know, young people are, you know, they follow their role models and, and it could be very negative role models and it could be simply fighting for their voice. Right. right. And so uh, with the thing that resonated with me, because I was raised in a, in a cult where, where there were lots of injustices, where I had this justice driver, where I was just like, I am helping other kids. Now you, you talk about the mirror and the lighthouse and, you know, I had to learn to have my own voice and to just say the stuff, even if it wasn't going to be listened to, right? 
And so allowing and enabling young people to have a voice, even if it comes out in a bit of a you know, sort of way is, is just such a blessing. I think I need to get back to volunteering or something. Yeah, anyway, maybe. Yeah, I need to get back to mentoring a few kids and, and make sure I, I support my own appropriately. Um, so Martin, let's, um, I, I want to get into your story a little bit because I've just given some, some hints at mine, which is like what drives us to, to find deep conversations with young people, meaningful, and to, to love the, the bumpy journey that is working with, with either in schools or with young people at, at whatever age. So, so give us a little bit of context just about you like growing up, like take us right back. Like, do you think your, your parental and education structures yourself kind of, kind of set you up for life in the real world? I don't think my education really helped set me up. Um, until I was about 16, I, I think I just slept through school. Or, or talk through school, depending on who you, who you ask. Yeah. Bit of a clown in class. What really woke me up was um, a talk. Somebody came to the school. and I would have been about 16, I suppose, one of those leaving years. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm from the UK, and this would have been a what, year nine, I think they call it. Just before you leave compulsory education. And the next level, the sixth form, when you go to college, that was optional. It's not so optional these days. No. Mm. And up until about that time, I don't think I'd done very much with school. It was more that school done something with me. I, I did reasonably well. But this talk that was given was about uh, young enterprise. So then if you know the organization, they, they encourage young people to start their own companies in the hope that they will grow into bigger companies and can employ people. But there was this guy walking about on stage telling us all about how to start a company. And he said something that really woke me up. And it was that if you can't find what you're looking for, employment in that case, if you can't find it, you can create it. And in that word, can, was embedded permission, acknowledgement of my innate skill, and, and presumably I'd learned enough mathematics and English or whatever to, to do the, the, the bookkeeping and, and the, uh, uh, the letter writing or whatever it would have been to, to start a business. Mm. But it was, you can do this. You have permission to go out and do whatever you want to do. And I remember that coming into my mind as... as opening up a door to the world outside school, which was otherwise employment or higher education. And this told me that I can, I can do whatever I want because I have permission, I have the potential to go out and do it. Yeah. And that, and that would have been, not to question your age or anything, but that would have been at a time when entrepreneurship wasn't maybe as cool or mainstream as it is today with like the, our kids, right? The younger ones, right? Um, oh, right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, in my class, yeah. the majority, okay, just a, just a majority were going straight from school, ending school in July, straight to work in a job that they had at the weekends or some of the evenings when yeah. they wouldn't work to earn money. Mm -hmm. idiot, idiot me, I mean, me and maybe slightly less than half of the class were going on to sixth form. In fact, the sixth form classes, we had like three whole classes, it combined into one in sixth form. 
so that it was very few of us who stayed mm. it was mm. not the thing to do it's the kind of nerdy you know yeah. oh you're incapable and you know okay you can't get a job and you know you were mocked for wanting to to be good stay, academic stay yeah yeah okay okay yeah, yeah. Uh, so starting your own company uh unheard of unheard of except of course my dad had his own company but okay. that that was also at around the time i was um turning 16 he wanted me to go and work for him so it wasn't like um it, yeah, it was like an employment somewhere else but i wanted to do my own thing so the little kind of fire just yes oh so, yeah yeah just the like of what's possible and what if you could build something did you already have like little ideas of what you might build were you starting and were you were you daydreaming were you creative about the idea of business or was it just like the door's open, but I have no idea where this is going to lead. Uh, well, when I came back to, into the sixth form, I did have an idea. And it was because there was a problem in the school. The problem was that the teenagers would go out. I mean, the small kids didn't do this. 11-year-olds didn't do this. The big boys went out and they would buy uh, cigarettes at the local shop, corner shop. Uh, and that was a big issue in the school because cigarettes were bad for you. Uh, it wasn't illegal at the time to sell smokes to teenagers, but it was generally frowned upon. Sure. And the parents were having a go at the head teacher, and the head was having a go at the teachers, the teachers were having a go at us. And I walked in with a solution. And the solution came to me um, because I wanted to do something with this entrepreneurial fire that had lit, been lit within me. Yeah. And I, I opened up my own shop, not selling cigarettes, because that was a bad thing, obviously, yeah. but for selling sweets, which meant the kids had no reason to go out of school. So they would go to my shop. So I had a little sweet shop in the school during lunch times, and I made a lot of money. I love that. And they do say, that, like, are entrepreneurs born or, or made, you know, and that there can be a combination of both, but... You're one of those examples, it sounds like, with, with some of the big entrepreneurs when they tell their stories, hustling at school, um, you know, whether it was baseball cards or sweets or <laughs> whatever it might have been, right, that you had. And now it's like online shop or, you know, that sort of thing to just get that, that, get that going. I mean, do you think entrepreneurs are, are born or made? I think we're all born as entrepreneurs. We learn not to. Oh, oh horrific, right? We're all born capable of learning and then we're taught. So we, we give up, in, to some extent, the ownership of our own learning. And we go and be taught by someone who knows better. The same thing happens. How do we get through life? We're born entrepreneurs. Each and every one of us will go out and search for food if we're hungry. We, do, you know, we might have to go for a shop or whatever. Um, but Why we learn I? to do something else. We learn to buy into a system because there's so many of us living in such a small area. It would be a little bit difficult if we were all fully entrepreneurial, I guess, um, because you would have to have um, some kind of regulation of like who pays the taxes and to whom and for what. So, yeah, you need a, you need a system. And, and yes, we could, we could sort of wax on about society and, and what it's doing to our children and all the rest of it. Um, but I'm really curious about what next. So I know you're an educator now and the, and the, and the things that you're doing now to create impact and coach people, coach educators and, and that side of things. Um, what was this, the, the sort of middle bit? And, and of course, the theme of the podcast is around adversity. And I'm wondering 
what were the, the highlights of your lowlights, right? So what were your rock bottom moments or times when you're just like riddled with self-doubt or, or, or you know, what, what showed up for you? Um, so I started my company, this would have been 1990, and I was trying to do what I thought was the right thing. And that yeah. was traveling around Gothenburg, where I lived, picking up a client here, and a client there. As all entrepreneurs do, we try to have a nice steady flow of clients, but yeah. they're all over the place and they want their services delivered at different times. And it was a challenge to make ends meet, to make any more money with the same sort of time that I would have had if I'd been working a nine to five job. It was difficult to keep within the nine to five for a start. It was difficult to make as much anywhere near as much money yeah. so it was a, a crisis of do i have to go back to being what i don't want to be or can i you know the, the guy said you can do whatever you want you can create it what was i going to create and the stroke of genius if you like if what pulled me out of it was realizing that when i'm working most of what's necessary is my voice. I don't have to stand next to the person I'm working with. Mm. I was teaching people English. That sounds like an English lesson. I was having English conversations with people who wanted to improve their English. So it was pr provoking and promoting conversation and then giving feedback. And I realized that I didn't need to be standing, sitting next to them for them to get what they needed. And I started offering one-to-one -one English training by phone. Okay, which, which, would, is, which would have, yeah. But easy peasy, really, but I was the only one doing it. And then of course, instead of reaching Gothenburg and the area around by, by car and public transport, I could now reach anywhere they had a phone. Oh. Suddenly I'm in Norway, suddenly I'm in Denmark, suddenly I'm in Stockholm, you know, that's such a long way away. Uh, Oslo's closer to Gothenburg, by the way. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that my, um, my customers were um, the kind of people who worked alone. They weren't um, one, of, one of many. They were usually just one person, like a project leader or a department head. Or the, the manager of a, of a company. So they, they were kind of isolated people in some way. And what they desperately needed was someone to speak to, someone who would listen to them. And the, the language training was at least as much an opportunity for them to speak about their daily life to someone who would listen mm -hmm. as it was about getting the feedback about the correct English. Hence the coaching uh, I called it coaching with an X, like coaxing. I was coaxing the language out of people. There's a, a, a methodology around eliciting, where you don't teach, you elicit the language. So that, that was, if you like, hitting, not, not rock bottom, but hitting a ledge that said, are you really going to do this? And I went from working lots of hours and earning little money to working very few hours and earning a lot of money. I would walk around the house with a very long cable on my... <laughs> Your landline. Phone. On my landline, right? Walking around the, the living room. Actually, I'm sitting in the same house now, talking to people who were, were 
responsible for running their companies. And I would ask, how's your day going? What's it like? What's coming up? What, you know, what meetings do you have? What are you thinking about? Just provoking and pulling out the language from them and then repeating back to them what I, what I heard, but in correct English. Um, having a, a wonderful time because all the travel time was gone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could work twice as hard with... <laughs> So things, so things begin to scale essentially because you now have, you can fit in more clients into, into less hours, right? Yeah. Uh, because yeah. you've just avoided the travel time. Um, yeah. And so you obviously start feeling like you're winning a bit and like life is good. And what happens next? Where does that take you? Uh, it, it took you, we were talking about adversity uh, and we were talking about rock bottom, but there is such a thing as rock ceiling. Ooh. And that is... It's like the upper limit problem. It's, a, it's an upper limit problem. It's... Okay, so, so I'd set myself... This is in Swedish Corona. I set myself um, a turnover of, of 1.2 million. That sounds a lot of money. It's about 12,000 pounds. No, 120,000 pounds. It's quite a lot of money. It's kind of it's decent. That'll, that'll, that'll work for a lot of people. <laughs> it'll, it'll work. I mean, I was only, only working to, you know, when the kids were at school. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. this was whilst at home, not, not traveling anywhere, the comfort of your own headset. Perfect. Um, and I think it was March, I went out to a company and I sold to them for half the year's turnover in one meeting. And I came back to my office and I sat down and I cried. I noticed that I was looking down, there were wet spots appearing on my jeans. I was crying big tears. So I knew something was up. It's become too easy. Where's the challenge? If I wait, can go but, out. Wait, but is that what the tears were? Like, like. I wasn't happy. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. So a sort of sadness at how, because this it's strange, like listening to it, I get the upper limit problem thing and we should go into that a little bit deeper, but essentially you're, you should be, you're celebrating, right? Cause you're like winning, you know, score. I just got whatever the amount of money was in one meeting. Right. Yeah. And, and, like, and you would think like, this is a, this is an amazing thing that you're getting to the next level, but instead you have, or maybe also as well as you have an emotional reaction, which is like, fuck, like I made this plan and like, fuck the plan. Like I just did it. Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly I had nothing to do. I mean, if it's, if it's this easy, then I don't want to do it. Ooh. Okay. So yeah. And I, I, I resonate with the entrepreneurial thing is like, as soon as I get to one thing, I'm like looking around going, what's the next opportunity? What's the next opportunity? There's, there's the entrepreneur. If, if there's a, if there's a question that goes through the entrepreneur, it's what next? How can oh. I do this quicker, faster, smoother? What, what's next? What's okay, here I am. I'll set an impossible goal. I set the million because I had a, a business consultant say to me, Martin, with your, with your, the way you work, you'll never reach a million. And I was out to prove him wrong. So I blow, blew through the million. Yeah. I'm on the other, but I become somebody that I was uncomfortable with being. So you weren't aligned with whoever your inner person was with this external like business guy who's, oh. okay. I had, I mean, I wasn't that well dressed, but I had a shirt and tie on and I was out there selling. I actually got the guy to sign off on 60,000 a month, 6,000 pounds a month for 10 months on one signature. 
it's just retainer. It's just, yeah. You're, yeah, you're just good. You can just like, take, you know, hang back while the kids are at school. <laughs> and it did not sit well with me. So I, I reached a kind of limit. I'm not willing, I'm not happy to do this. It's like reaching the top of a mountain. It's like, uh, is, is that what it's supposed to be like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember having a, a long conversation with my wife, an intelligent person who said, I've got to do what's right for me, otherwise I'm going to be miserable. And they, they'd noticed a change in me. I'd become quite sharp and snappy and interesting, determined. And, uh, you know, I, I was no longer the, <laughs> the rucksack-carrying, scruffy hippie <laughs> that she got, got into all those years ago. I turned into something I was not. And just to prove somebody wrong, I mean, hello. It's a pretty good reason. I spent a good decade of my life just <laughs> achieving in order to prove someone wrong. Um, and, then, and then you have to do this weird assessment thing yeah. Of like, what's important to me now? Or what's my motivation now? Am I running away from something? Am I proving someone wrong? Or, or am I actually creating and running towards something that not only puts the dollars in the bank, you know, which is a sign of achievement, but like lights me on fire in some sort of way. So what did you change? Like, where did this take you? Uh, initially, I started employing people to do the work. Lovely. I was a horrible boss. I apologize to any of them who are listening. <laughs> I am the worst boss ever because I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I you don't want to micromanage people and just do that like bullshit day-to-day -day stuff. Right. You want to create, you want to innovate, you want the new ideas, the fresh stuff. Oh God, I understand what you mean so much. Yes. So I, I was the worst boss ever. I'm still friends with several of them, but there, there are three I think would walk on, cross the road if they saw me coming. Uh, and I wouldn't blame them for a second because I, I was not a nice guy. And this was part of the revelation. I'd become something I was not in order to, to do something I didn't want to do other than to prove somebody wrong. And I was proving my father wrong. I was proving this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I want to highlight that by just saying, just, you know that saying, just because, because you can do something doesn't mean you should. You have to, no. Just because you're even, you're, you were probably going, I'm good at this. I just made the money and whatever. And just because you can. And I recently, I, I, I went to Switzerland and, and just hung out with some artists and whatever. Um, and the guy was like, uh, I, I'm a co-founder of this startup and it's going really well. And then we, I fell out with my business partner because he was like, saying we should scale up and we should scale up, scale up, scale up and investors and, and sort of grow it. And he was like, why? Like, mm -hmm. is that what I want? Do I want to scale? Am I scaling just because I can? Or is that the lifestyle that I actually want? So, so you're slow. And I also love that it's never a one day to the next epiphany thing. Very rarely. Is it like, oh, actually I want to be doing this. No, I'm a shitty boss. I'm, I'm like, do I'm employing people. I'm like doing all the stuff that I think I should be doing. And inside, you know, there's this slow kind of, you know, withering of my soul or like, the, like not recognizing the person that I've become or it's this slow thing, right? Until we then go, shit. So, like, so what was your catalyst point or at what point did you kind of go, I'm not happy, something has to change? Was it gradual or did you kind of know something from one day to the next? There is a day to the next, but it was definitely a, a gradual um, process. Um, I would say that a process of denial, denial, denial until I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, parallel to me doing my stuff, there was a, uh, a legal firm in, very close by where I was working. And they'd gone through the same process. They tried to scale up and it had collapsed. 
So I was very interested why that hadn't worked. And he was like me, we were very made, much made from the same cloth. Mm -hmm. He was out to prove something and he was scaling up to prove something. And his collapsed. And he was trying to sell me all the furniture. I was saying, no, 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 I don't need this. I don't need, I don't want this. I, don't, I just need a headset. <laughs> um, but I had people around me that I was trying to move in towards what I was doing and they weren't able to do it. It, it's not easy being a coach. Um, anyway, that's another story. The point came when um, a female colleague who'd actually been through burnout, um, taken two years off work and was coming back, she and I had a conversation and, and she just asked me, you know, how are you sleeping? And, uh, you know, do you find that, and how's that going with, and she asked me, I think, five or six questions and I realized this was almost like a questionnaire that she'd been through mm. around stress. And she said, you know what? You, you scored really high on the stress scale. Um, yeah. But I, then I got someone with slightly more official um, questions and scales and whatever. And I was really, really stressed. But I kind of knew that. But I hadn't... Like I denial. This, this is what life's like, right? This, this sort of... Because passion gets mixed up with enthusiasm and being overwhelmed. I and love it. Okay, so sometimes we can have a belief system, I think, that an, entrepreneur, an entrepreneur's life equals what you just did, or like this kind of stress, yeah. hyper-focus. Uh, and, and, and we need the focus, but like, like we almost should have heart palpitations and not be able to sleep because it's so important to us and it's so, we're so passionate about it. And I think that what you're saying is that belief system can kind of mess with our head because if that's what we think normal is, we don't then explore, because you're a very passionate person in what you do now, and it can be, a, and it's a different experience, right? Yeah. Um, so there's, oh, there's something just in the cult of entrepreneurship as well, right? Of just like, it must be a certain way. And if I'm feeling this, then that means it matters to me. It's that burn you get if, you're, if you work out, you know, you feel the, the burn. Uh, and it, you kind of commit yourself to being burned, burning but then, yourself. But yeah, but then in a similar way, when you're not feeling the burn anymore, because you're like, yeah. oh, I just have the employees doing it and everything's running, it's a tight ship, all that kind of stuff. It can kind of be like, oh, where's the burn? Like something feels wrong. And in order for us to push Missing. through. Oh, God, right. Okay, so, so you do this questionnaire, you realize, oh, on the, you now externalize some of what you've been feeling inside. You know, yeah, I had, names for, I had names and numbers, and it was like, okay, I'm stressed. What do I do? What, what can I get rid of? What can I take away? And I tried to reduce the days. I, I created something I called mid-weekend, which is Wednesday. Nice. So I would only work two days in a row. And then I would have a break, two days work, holiday, uh, weekend at, the, at home with the, with the family, and then two days work, holiday, and so forth. Um, yeah, it worked, actually. It, it was a good first move. Um, but I would use day two to think about. <laughs> I, I remember saying at some dinner party that I only worked 20 hours a week. I was kind of showing up. Oh, I only work 20 hours a week. Uh, and my wife leaned in and said, actually, you work 20 hours a day. Ooh. When you're asleep, you plan. And I go, shit. <laughs> <laughs> she <laughs> sees me. <laughs> uh, and of course, 
working with that intensity, the family were very, uh, she said it's like walking in eggshells. They were very careful around me because I was apparently so, um, oh, what's the word? Um, what can I think it's Swedish? Um, easily irritated. Easily. Yeah, so like snappy. Snappy. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Rude, stupid. I get pissed off at the slightest nothings and, yeah. So there's this ripple effect oh, gosh. that you're not really aware of until your wife says these things or you hear from the external, yeah. But the ripple went into the bank account. The bank account went, la, 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 la. fantastic. But the relationships with family and friends and colleagues went da, 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 down. And with myself. So I was superficially successful. But in depth, I was far from successful because I wasn't being who I wanted to be. Did you know who you wanted to be? I think I've always known, but I had, didn't have words on it. At that time, I just knew that there was a gap between where I am or where I want to be. So what was the journey like to figure out in the first instance um, what the goal is, like what you want to be? The first step was opening up to saying, I can't do this on my own. I can't find this out on my own. You need help? I'm an entrepreneur and I need help. Oh my God. I have to be not subordinate, but ooh, I have to ask for you have help. To be vulnerable. I'm a guy. I don't even ask for directions. <laughs> no, I'm joking there. But I don't ask for directions. Well, there you go. There you um, go. Um, something male or female, that entrepreneurial, like I'm known for not wanting to ask for help. I'm like, let me just, I can do like the transition to even letting my facilitators do training on my behalf took six months. Yeah. Amazing. And they're even better than me in certain, in, in certain aspects. They deliver better than me. Like, and I was just like, let me just do that thing. What if, what if, what if, right? So, so you're now going, I, you're admitting to yourself in the first instance that you need yeah. help. And then where do you go to get it? Who do you go? Um, just an, an HR manager who was within my uh, customer, within my, let's say, my massive, at the time, massive network. I reached out. And I think he, he was able to read this sort of struggling entrepreneur in me that I'd reached a point where being an entrepreneur was bad for my health, good for my wallet, but bad for my health. And he gave me uh, one of these questionnaires. I think it was the Maya Briggs uh, type mm. indicator. And I filled that in. And I'm, I'm equally introvert and extrovert, depending on which way the wind blows or which way I want the wind, the wind to blow. Sure. Um, but when it came to, um, ooh, what was the other one? But anyway, I, my, my type, it was very clear. And so you're not like starting to just practice some self-awareness, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Through other people's opinions, a little bit of testing, information yeah. to, to kind of start the messy road to go, who am I? How do I find my truth? And then can I be who I think I want to be? Is, is it... Um, is it possible? Is it cast in the stars? And is it, is it permissible to be? Because there's a lot of me that says, um, not lazy. But one, I hear lazy, but it doesn't, it's kind of efficient as well. I want to work as few hours as possible because I actually have something to do in this world. And I'm working and filling up my time doing the work. What I'd rather be doing, what I feel I'm here to be doing is... So what I've heard you say a few times, so psychologically, looking for that permission, 
seemed quite important. So the, the talk at school gave you permission. Uh, perhaps your dad in some way gave you permission to, because you were proving him wrong, to start the business that you did, right? Um, and now you're looking for permission to change and to, to, and to discover who you actually are and how you could actually show up in the world. Yeah. And of course, um, I had been, where are we now? I'm 50. See, in the storyline, I'm 50. Um, I went to an organization that offers um, inspirational talks to teenagers. And I knew this was something I wanted to do. Getting into school is really hard. They are very protective of their students, and, and rightly so, because who knows what kind of idiot they might let in through the door otherwise. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. And uh, I went and had an interview, and uh, I was, you know, passionate, passionate entrepreneur educator, basically sums me up. And he said, well, would you like to give, give a talk at this place? And I did, and it was absolutely wonderful. I didn't okay, wait, why, why did you, you didn't get paid any money, but it was like high fulfillment, right? Oh, yeah. Why teenagers? Where did that, why teenagers? Because when I was 16, a man stood on stage and said, if you want to, you can. I want to be that guy for as many people as possible. I want to release the potential that's in our teenagers by saying, you have permission. If you need permission, here you are. Permission's given out. And so there I get the chills, right? And so like... Um, and I can just feel how that that first talk or whatever was driving you was that little piece of you know what had impacted you, and so it's the the, the, the sort of fire is there. But then also the self doubt stuff of like, am I the guy? Should I be doing this? It's not paying me anything, and you almost had to test it out in that first little bit. Yeah. Uh, and so where did that lead you? More. <laughs> so you oh, felt it. It felt exciting. Oh gosh! I mean, there's nothing because when when I stand there, the body, the physical body, is of a man of fifty with a lot of experience. But inside, as I tried to explain to them, inside, I'm not much over twenty-five. You know, well, not much. They're like, they're like you're fifty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe I'm even eight years old because I'm scared of you guys because there's more of. <laughs> you. I mean, I I just let them know I'm up here as you know the teacher role, and I'm. I'm nervous. And if I n- 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 say something and I, you can hear that I'm nervous, I'll, I'll admit it straight away because they can see it straight away. Why would I try and hide it? Because as soon as I hide something, they know I'm hiding it. They lose interest. Lose trust as well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Being completely transparent, authentic, honest, open, love it. I, I mean, I'm talking about how they respond to it. Um, and then, of course, that became, okay, this, this organization has hundreds of people like myself who are willing to give talks. Of those hundreds, there's 10 or 20 who've done more than five. There are some who've done 30 or 40. I've gone over 100. I've, and in terms of quantity, I'm outstripping pretty much everyone else added together. Uh, and, and that was what I said I would do. When I signed up, I said, I want to be the most used, highest rated public speaker that you've got. Now, use me. Are you still <laughs> trying to prove something? In a way, I'm still trying <laughs> to prove something because you know, I don't want to go in and say, oh, I might be doing it sometimes on occasions if I have time. You're committed. Yeah, I'm committed to doing it. Fully. So, so, so does this mean, do you, do you still run the other side of the, your business as well, plus the education piece? Is there like a duality to what you do so you get money and fulfillment? Yeah. 
this just sounds like the dream. So there's a way to do both rather than, because I think people have limiting beliefs or black and white beliefs around if I follow my passion, I'm going to be, you know, struggling, you know, the struggling artist idea or, you know, um, or I need to sell my soul in order to make money and do the, the sort of material comfort things that I want. And you've like navigated a way to do both. And I've slightly navigated away from that because working, let's say training people to speak English, it's quite enjoyable. I mean, it's an easy thing for me to do to speak English. And I can really hear what people's linguistic loops, what they're thinking in incorrectly. I can hear what's going on. So I'm able to bring them back. I can still do that. When I'm working with teenagers with um, public speaking, I'm going in talking to a whole class. I'm also a tutor. I go into a small group and I work on a one-to-one basis with whichever student asks for help. And that's on a voluntary basis as well. And I get more satisfaction from the last two than I do from the first because the first one's so easy. Like, there's almost no effort because I've been doing it for 30 years. So it's the challenge that allows for the fulfillment, but then with the young people, it's also the giving back piece, allowing for their longer term potential to be filled. So it just it kind of gives you that fulfillment. And there's more, more, I mean, with the telephone calls, it's more structured. We know what we're going to talk about. We, we, we know what's going to happen. I'm going to ask them about their day, da, 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 and we have a conversation. Whereas with the teenage, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. And I know I can cope with whatever comes up. It could be anything. We're there supposedly, te- I'm doing mathematics, so we're there with a focus on mathematics, but why are they struggling with maths? Well, it's because... And yeah. that's where I go. It's the big cause. It's not the mathematics that's the problem. It's what's stopping them from getting to the mathematics that's, that's the issue. And often it's a limiting a belief about something they've learned from home about what mathematics is or what study is or what higher education is. And they're struggling with that as much as they are with the adding and subtracting. And so what or has there been a ripple effect on your own personal family life um, to having your fulfillment levels raised? Yeah, I would, I, you'd have to ask someone. I, I'm very aware as I'm speaking, my daughter will be listening to this. <laughs> Let me see. She's yes. 30. Be honest and authentic. Oh, well, not authentic. She's born 88, so she's more than 30 years old. Um, <laughs> not much. The effect on all three children is that they are... Okay, they're good at English in Sweden, so they're good at English because I'm good at English. They're good at maths, all three of them, but they also have a a sense of entrepreneurship and what a good pedagogue it should be like. So they they felt all of that. And I think they see me as being much happier and much more relaxed and laughing a lot more, um, probably stressing a lot less than five, ten years ago. Um, when I was going through like the fifty, the fifties crisis, yeah, one of those. <laughs> I I even had that as a as a sales pitch for some coaching. Are you having your fifty year old crisis? No, would you like to wait? <laughs> anyway, um, 
50-year-old crisis. So there is a ripple effect. And I guess it was a striking image when you were describing your stress levels and the impact on your family, which is you being snappier, you, yeah. you kind of, you know, and there, there's this effect where they're mirroring to you in a way going, dude, like, oh, that's eggshells. Like we're not, eggshells. you know, um, and, and obviously internally you're deeply unhappy. And it sounds like you've journeyed towards um, a bit more balance. But I love that you said you had a 50 year old crisis because I want to highlight that, that sometimes people like the story of like, this was challenging. And even the entrepreneurial story is like, this was challenging and now we've sold this billion dollar company and it's all wonderful and rosy, right? Um, but actually, life is consistently about challenges, right? Yeah. And it's about reflecting and going, I thought I had this and then something shifts or we get a curveball or, or, or stuff like that. What does the future hold for you? What excites you about the future? What are you learning? Well, I retired last month. Did you? Okay. Yeah, I think tomorrow is my official last day of, of work. Is it? I've been on holiday. I've negotiated a holiday. Is that marvelous? I no wonder you've had a crisis. <laughs> uh, so that that was um, you know another thing. I've been self-employed for all my working life. How do you retire? What does that look like? What does that even mean? I don't how do you, what's the conversation with your boss going to be like when you say, I want to retire? Who says yes? Who but gives what, you permission what? to retire? Ooh, who gives you permission to retire? But also what entrepreneur wants to retire? That's what I'm confused exactly, about. Exactly. Well, I want to do the entrepreneurial thing without having to worry about making the financial ends meet. I want to sure. do something that's more that I, that I am passionate about, but I don't have to say, Oh, but it doesn't pay me any money down. No, I just want it to be a non-question. So passion just, projects, yeah. Passion project for life. So I officially retired when I was 60 and I went back to work <laughs> because I didn't know how to do retirement as an entrepreneur. And I got a job. I got an actual bona fide sign on the dotted line employment. And I've had a boss. I mean, I've never had. That sounds crazy. I know. But it's, it was a way for me to round also, off employment. It also sounds like a relief. Oh, yeah. To some extent, you know, yeah. when you're spinning all plates everywhere, there's definitely this magical place where I go, um, oh, let's, let me just show up in an office where I have friends at nine o'clock, right? And leave at five or whatever it is people do these days and not have to take to, to you know, take to bed, you know, all yes. the thoughts and all the, the planning that, that your wife described that you did at night. Yeah. Okay, so you worked. I, I still had some of that because I still had my project, if you like. It was still, it was still running. It's still, I write books, by the way. So I mean, it's more of a hobby than, than an income driver. Uh, but my job for a year was to coach people back into work in a workplace. So these were like protected workplaces where people who have come back from illness or absence from work could work together. And my job was just to provide oil so the machinery worked. And it was easy. I could get up in the morning, I could go to work. And I could it would be easy. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the effort level was, how many more hours can I sit here? And oh, something's happening. Okay, let's deal with that. Yeah. It was fairly low um, in terms of effort, but it gave me the opportunity to reflect on what do I want to do when I'm not working? Here, money's coming in by itself because I'm employed and I can fill my hours with whatever. So the after-work activities became uh, much freer because I didn't have to worry about it making ends meet. So, and then that ended 
or rather when they offered me the opportunity of continuing, I said, no, thank you. And I will now retire again. Maybe it's going to take three times before I learn how to do this retirement. I'm pretty sure it will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because the entrepreneur in me says, what do you want to do with your life? How would I want on my gravestone kind of thing? What's my legacy? Yeah. So I want there to be a platform, whether that's a physical or electronic platform, that connects educators because again, I have a great passion for education, and coaches, because I still have a passion for coaching, and they do overlap. So I'm exploring the overlap so that I can get these two worlds to mesh together. Currently, I have 30 coaches who have signed up to give pro bono coaching only to educators, and I have 27 educators who are receiving pro bono coaching so that they can get a the immediate benefits of being coached and b a taste of what it's like to be coached to awaken their interest perhaps to find about how could they employ some of this coaching idea in their teaching and it's morphing i've had it there since 20 November 2014 so it's been there in the background it's been semi dormant for 4 years it kicked in almost the same time as what I got the other job that I just retired from. And now people are stepping up. I've got a call in two hours time, but people are stepping up and saying they want to take this section. They want to take that section. And I'm learning to let go. I won't be their manager. I'm learning to let go and let people take it on. As you say, the facilitators will do a better job than me if I can only allow them to do it. We need to. It's us that can be the limiting factor. Oh, In gosh. all our zeal and excitement, we can, we can limit the situation. Um, we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, so first of all, before I ask sort of my final questions, where can people find you? Where can they get in touch, especially if they're one of those coaches or educators who want to get involved? Oh, it's simple. It's my name, Martin Richards. Dot S-E, S-E for Sweden. Lovely. We'll put that into the show notes. And I want to end sort of where we started, which was around the teenagers. So 